Today on Reparations in Action. The senator said, asked the question, would it be best henceforward to try to, quote, civilize the Indians or simply to exterminate them? And let me just say, both sides of that question, of course, are conquest and genocide. You're listening to Reparations in Action. Uhuru. You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show, The White Lies Shattered series. My name is Jamie Simpson. I am the host of Reparations in Action, which broadcasts weekly on Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Reparations in Action is a program of white solidarity with Black Power. Currently, we are in a podcast series exposing the insidious lies we tell ourselves as white or European people about the nature and origin of America and the current social system. We believe reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to begin by saluting Black Power 96 where this show is aired and recorded for our podcast weekly. Today, we are continuing our discussion on the white lie that the white man discovered America and settled the West. So for this part two of our discussion, it will be led by Penny Hess, chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee and author of the book, Overturning the Culture of Violence. And joining us also today is Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. Uhuru, and welcome back, Chairwoman Penny Hess. Uhuru, Uhuru Jamie, and Chair Jesse, leader of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. And as always, I'm so happy to be here back on Reparations in Action, and I'm excited to continue our discussion taking on this important lie that the white man or the European colonizers quote, discovered the Americas and, quote, heroically settled the West. And as the chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee, I salute Chairman O'Malley Ishitella, Deputy Chair Onisene Ishitella, and the African People's Socialist Party that formed the African People's Solidarity Committee as part of their strategy to liberate Africa and African people everywhere. And so the work of the Solidarity Committee is to go into the white community and to open up the minds of other white people to challenge the ideas and narrative of the conqueror that we just take for granted and the overall reality that the wealth and power of the US and Europe are built on the colonial kidnapping and enslavement of African people, the theft of the land and genocide of the indigenous people and the colonial domination and exploitation of the majority of the peoples on the planet earth and that we owe reparations. So I just want to start from that. And of course, to say that my ability to understand and sum up this history and these questions comes from the leadership of Chairman O'Malley Shatella. We use African internationalism, a theory of practice that was created by the chairman and, and the African People's Socialist Party to analyze the world as it really is and to inspire us to get active, to actively, actually change it. So we are showing that colonialism still exists for African, indigenous, and oppressed peoples inside the U.S. And this is the basis for what we can see as the two Americas, one living at the expense of the other. So in the last episode, we talked about the popular colonial president who was a perpetrator of genocide and inflicted profound atrocities against the indigenous people. He was an owner of African human beings. I'm talking about Andrew Jackson, who put forward an official plan for the quote, Indian Removal Act or US government sponsored genocide against the indigenous people presented that to U.S. Congress. We read some of that um, in 1830, calling for and enacting into law the extermination of the indigenous people and instigating what is known as the Trail of Tears 
the genocidal forced marches of indigenous people that went on for a decade. And of course, we can't talk about Andrew Jackson without noting that Jackson is still greatly popular today among the MAGA uh, crowd. And Donald Trump has cited Jackson as his own personal hero and a, quote, reflection of himself, according to an article in the Washington Post. Right. So, you know, Jamie, I mean, we're politically, we're in the same colonialism as always. And that this popular white genocide and this, this you know, popular, which we're going to show today, this popular uh, sentiment and unity of white settlers and the general white population um, enforced and prompted what is known as the Trail of Tears. And so I want to talk about that a little bit because we don't really learn that in our schools, at least certainly I didn't. I never had heard of that until I came into this movement and was able to hear the voice of indigenous people and hear the truth about what this government with the complicity of the white population has done to, um, to the indigenous people and the conditions they live under today. Um, but the Trail of Tears was a forced march of thousands of miles from Georgia and ultimately to what is now Oklahoma involving, it said, at least 20,000 people, but that is most probably a gross underestimation of the true amount, but it ended up removing at least 125,000 indigenous people from their homes in the East Coast and in the Southern, what are today the Southern states, Thousands upon thousands were killed through this process. And in 1830, a group of indigenous people, the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Muscogee and Seminole tribes were living as autonomous nations in what would later be termed the American Deep South. Many of the people had faced the early genocidal destruction of their lives and their traditional cultures by the colonial state. And especially among the Cherokee and Choctaw, many had created a life in farming the land, a sedentary life living um, with farms and, you know, and constructed villages, houses, towns. And the white settler colonialists, had been pressuring the federal government to remove the indigenous people from the Southeast from the very beginning. And this land throughout the South was completely tied, you know, we have to remember, to the enslavement of African people and to the cultivation of um, cotton and, and other products that involved enslaved African human beings that created not only wealth for the southern states, but for the entire U.S. economy and the world economy, as we've talked about in previous episodes of White Lies Shattered. So many of these settlers were encroaching on Indian lands, and while others wanted more land made available to the settler colonists. Um, so the Indian Removal Act was enacted in 1830, which authorized the government to extinguish any indigenous title to land claims in the Southeast. And of course, this is after many treaties, of course, all of which were thrown out, meant nothing. Um, just, you know, the, the conquering, um, the, you know, just the U.S. government's uh, conquest of the people whose land this was. So, in 1831, the Choctaw people became the first indigenous nation to be removed, and their removal served as a model for all future relocations, which again went on for over 10 years. And after two wars, many Seminoles were removed in 1832. The Creek removal followed in 1834, the Chickasaw in 1837, and lastly, the Cherokee in 1838. And some, some of the indigenous people managed to evade the removals, however, and remained in their ancestral homelands 
Some Choctaw, a tiny few, still reside in Mississippi, some Creek in Alabama, and in Florida, um, the Seminole live, the Cherokee in North Carolina, and so on. And a small group of Seminole, which banded together with many African people, um, evaded forced removal and fought the Seminole Wars in Florida that were led by Andrew Jackson. And the modern Seminole tribe or people of Southern Florida is descended from these same individuals. I would also note that over 4,000 African people were also part of the Trail of Tears, including some of those who were actually owned by members of the Cherokee petty bourgeoisie, some of whom were very wealthy and a few, I would say a tiny percentage, by the way, to really like four or five um, who were uh, slave masters, who owned plantations. And then other Africans were spouses of indigenous people or what were called freedmen who had won uh, nominal freedom in the United States and were on the land, on, on what was the Cherokee or other indigenous land. So by 1837, 46,000 indigenous people from the southeastern states had been removed from their homelands. And that opened up 25 million acres for white settlement. And so, you know, just to say quickly that before 1838, the fixed boundaries of this autonomous tribal nations comprised large areas of the United States as we know, and, and that these lands that the indigenous people were constantly fighting to protect and defend and, and maintain were, were, you know, subject to continual, um, you know, annexation and uh, white people going in and stealing the land and settling and, you know, doing all the things that settler colonizers do, squatters, the settler colonizers, and the threat of U.S. military force in these territories was, was ever growing. And that, you know, as these territories became U.S. states, state governments were given full right by the U.S. government to dissolve the boundaries of any of the treaties, of any of the indigenous uh, autonomy. And the states became independent state jur jurisdiction and, and went set about, you know, methodically expropriating the land therein. And, you know, that, of course, as the settler colonizer population grew and grew, as it always does, and white people were involved in this, played a role in it, and there was very little, um, you know, distinction between what would be a, a government, a U.S. government, federal, state, or volunteer, um, excur you know, incursions into the land with armed uh, militia. Of, of the white population, because it's what Chairman O'Malley Ashitella has described as the white people's state. So I just want to go quickly into this and, and sum up quickly that um, Andrew Jackson, again, his main platform was the um, extermination of the indigenous people. And he forced this treaty, the Treaty of New Echota, on December 29th, 1835, which granted the Cherokee two years to move their territory to modern day uh, Oklahoma. And to say that a lot, they lived in Georgia, uh, the Cherokee did, they lived many in mountainous areas or the foothills of the Appalachians. And that the masses of the Cherokee people refused to go absolutely adamant and that only a fraction of the Cherokee left voluntarily. So they had two years. They were given an ultimatum. You have two years to leave and then we're taking over. And the people refused and, and went on with their lives. It was their land. They refused to give into that. And they were very furious at their neo-colonial leaders who made this treaty. Um, and 
So the U.S. government, with the assistance of state militias, forced most of the remaining Cherokees west in 1838. So two years to the day, they came into the indigenous lands. White people just started taking over their houses, their farmlands, and the Cherokees were temporarily put into camps in eastern Tennessee. And in November, the Cherokee were broken into groups of around a thousand each. So if you look, if you if you Google the Trail of Tears, there were about it looks like five to ten different routes that the indigenous people were forced to, to walk, to walk with nothing, no food, no warm clothes, nothing. Um, they endured heavy rains, the coldest winter ever, snow, freezing temperatures, right, you know, ice, etc. And um, so when the Cherokee petty bourgeois neocolonialist leaders negotiated the Treaty of New Echota, they exchanged all their land east of the Mississippi for land in modern Oklahoma and a $5 million payment from the federal government, which is so typical. That didn't go to the people. That went to the petty bourgeoisie. So, you know, as it even relates, and this is a profound history, and there's different films and movies that, that you can watch about this, but many Cherokee were outraged. They, were, they knew that they were betrayed, that their leadership had accepted this deal, and over 16,000 Cherokee people signed a petition to prevent the passage of the treaty. Um, but by the end of the decade in 1840, tens of thousands of Cherokee and other peoples had been removed from their land east of the Mississippi. The, the Creek, the Chaco, Seminole, and Chickasaw were all relocated under the Indian Removal Act of 1830. One Choctaw leader portrayed the removal as a trail of tears and death, a devastating event that removed most of the native population from the southeastern United States from their traditional home. A volunteer soldier from Georgia who participated in the removal recounted, I fought through the Civil War and have seen men shot to pieces and slaughtered by thousands, but the Cherokee removal was the cruelest work I ever knew. And, you know, this whole discussion, just like what, what you said earlier, Chairwoman Penny, that uh, this is the same, same colonialism that is dominant today in the world, uh, it reminds me so much of the colonial removal of the Palestinian people um, by the, the white uh, Jewish colonial settlers of occupied Palestine who, be, you know, self-described as Israelis. I mean, it's the exact same story. The, the destruction of their villages, the the burning of their olive trees, the stealing of their homes, uh, the just the mass murder and expulsion and torture, um, it's it's exactly the same. It's the exact same settler colonialism. And uh, in in previous episodes, we've sort of touched on this whole this whole notion of you know Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler as uh, as being portrayed as the most towering examples of violence by human beings against other human beings in, in human history. And this whole idea of the quote unquote Holocaust, like what happened to European Jews in, in Germany at the hands of other Europeans is called the Holocaust. When uh, what happened to the indigenous people of this land on which we sit, what happened to African people was the real Holocaust upon which the entire social system rests. And in fact, uh, it, as Chairman Omalia Shatella has said, compared to Andrew Jackson, compared to these, you know, bloodthirsty killers, Adolf Hitler was a Boy Scout. And indeed, Hitler admired the United States and, and so-called Western uh, model of genocide of the indigenous people. He spoke glowingly about the efficiency and the totality of the U.S. genocide against the indigenous people. And yet there wasn't even a word for genocide when all of this was happening until, uh, until a Polish Jew came up with the word to characterize what happened to a sector of the European population in Europe. Yes, and that is so true. And also that the genocide laws, I guess, of international law, um, were written in a way that they could not be retroactive. I mean, pretty much, quote unquote, they could not deal with anything other than what, what Europeans did to Jews. 
you know, in, in Europe. I also want to go into the California and the gold rush. But before I talk about that, I do want to say that before the gold rush, you know, in the earliest days of the colonization of the U.S. landmass um, and the theft of indigenous land, many um, um, European priests and different kinds of religious orders, including the Jesuits and others, fanned out as a uh, kind of shock troops, as forefront, uh, forerunners of the settlers to begin to, to, quote, settle the land and to, to begin to massively perpetrate genocide against the indigenous people. In California, there's all along the coast from Northern California down to um, Southern, there are, um, there, there are missions. There are what were churches and they're called missions and they're tourist sites and they're things that, that the Jesuits and other priests and religious orders built um, to begin, you know, as we said, they were, they were work forced, forced labor camps really. And that these are tourists, this is part of the tourist industry now and in San Francisco, the Mission Dolores and, and, and many others that, that you can visit if you want it to be a tourist in, on the California coast. And, but it is written, you know, that this mass genocide was led and supervised by the priest called Father Junipero Serra, who has been and is in um, in the process of being termed a saint by the Catholic Church. Um, and he, he was the greatest perpetrator of genocide. And all around these, these so-called missions are the mass graves of indigenous people who were forcibly housed there under hideous conditions, worked to death, um, sexually trafficked and every other kind of, of crime against them. And yet, you know, this is put forward as a relig these religious heroes who settled this land from um, the quote, barbarians. And so in 1848, um, California, which was still owned by Mexico, there was gold found in what was called Sutter's Mill and um, you know, roughly around in the Sierras, the Sierra Mountains of California. And um, this created a gold rush. And the gold rush was complete and total genocide. It finished off everything that the white people, the white colonizers had already started. And that in included um, open state-sponsored genocide in which um, the U.S. government, or let's say the California government, wants the land. Well, let me just say, first of all, that what happened was the U.S., as soon as they discovered gold, immediately went into Mexico to steal that land and stole, uh, stole California and uh, just about every other state in the southwest of the United States now from Mexico in, in 1848 in uh, a war of conquest, a colonial war to steal that land. And so after California became a state, it began paying white people a million dollars, over a million dollars over a period of a few years for um, the scalps of indigenous people. So it enlisted the general white population in the genocide, which white people have done anyway, but this paid them for it. It was state sanctioned. And, you know, this is the reality that that exists. And so this genocide during the, this wave of genocide, I should say, during the uh, California gold rush, included colonial child sex trafficking because here in the Sierras panning for this gold were literally thousands upon thousands of white men. And so they had, you know, they kidnapped indigenous children, girls, boys, and women, and sold them 
white people sold them um, to these white, you know, prospectors, gold prospectors, and um, colonizers. You know, this was part of the of the genocide. So I just wanted to read briefly from an article um, that was going over this. This was written in 2018, and it was saying, though often romanticized in history books, museum exhibits, and government, government park displays, the gold rush era in California is remembered by many California Indians as a time when their ancestors did whatever they could to survive, facing $5 bounties for Indian scalps, massacres, slavery, and sex trafficking of Indian children by the miners, Corina Gold Cochieno, Ohlone ancestors went into hiding at a ranch in Pleasanton, pretending to be Mexicans until it was safe to come out as Indians decades later. She said, for me, I think the gold, greed, and genocide continues as people and corporations come to our homeland to take our land, water, and resources, and our power as indigenous people, said Gould, co-founder of Indian People Organizing for Change. As these cities in the Bay Area built up, they in invisibilize the Ohlone, and they continue to do it. So, you know, that's a little bit about what this reality is. And there is a very um, informative video called Gold, Greed, and Genocide that you can see on YouTube if you want to find out more about this. But it is, you know, something that they're still facing today because a byproduct, as, as the indigenous people raise, a byproduct of gold mining is um, arsenic and mercury in, um, that is used to, uh, to facilitate getting the, you know, extracting the gold. And that washes off into all the lands and the uh, lakes and rivers of that area of California. And it's still polluted today. Clear Lake, California, um, and, and many other areas. And this is where the indigenous people fished and farmed and, and lived. And um, it became, you know, toxic just to be around it. And, and again, it is still toxic today. Some of, some of these mercury, et cetera, have long half-lives. Um, this, is, this is still the pollution that they face today. So, you know, just wanted to to bring that up and just wanted anybody to have a comment on that uhuru penny i i really appreciate the history that you continue to bring to light um i'll never forget reading overturning the culture of violence uh, about the gold rush in particular and the genocide of indigenous people in california and i think it's just so important that we grapple with this as white people that we confront uh that history that we are first presented with in movies like Westerns, you know, where the pioneer is always the innocent one and they earn the right to the land because they settled it. And, um, you, you know, things, things like what, what you're talking about here, th this is the DNA of what colonialism is, of what settler colonialism is, that it's genocide, that it's bloodlust, that it's this rapacious thing that, um, creates toxicity in the land that brings along with it sex slavery, um, that we begin to see this uh, through the eyes of the indigenous, that this is what it always was. Because there's so much out there that still perpetuates the idea that uh, colonialism is a force for good, that it may have these negative side effects, but ultimately it's a force for progress, right? To recall a former topic of white lies shattered. Um, and it's, it's just not true that there's anything redeemable about this system. Like Chairman Amalia Chatella has said, there's absolutely, it's, it's something with no redeeming value whatsoever, colonial capitalism. And you can see that in things like the, uh, the, the gold rush, but you can also see the delusion of this society in trying to convince itself that there is something redeemable here, that it is good. And the, the fact that take, take the 49ers, right? That refers to the settler col colonists, that refers to the gold rush. Uh, there, there's a, a, 
sports team, right, named for that. And then even the concept of the pioneer in a movie that I'm not trying to bring it up as a topic, but I, you know, I haven't even seen it. I've seen clips of that uh, movie. I think it won the Oscar Nomad where uh, they compare the lead characters with, with what she's doing as uh, being like uh, an, a modern day pioneer, right? Even that term, the pioneer, mm-hmm. as, as this brave person who goes out mm-hmm. and creates new new landscapes and new cultures. Uh, so it's it's just so important that we come face to face with this and and see it for what it always was. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And I think that also we see in this total, you know, part of the extermination of the indigenous people, whether in the gold rush or whether the conscious killing of the bison, that the destruction of the environment was part and parcel of it. And today we have a white-led environmentalist movement that wants to separate out the genocide of the indigenous people, the assault and colonization of African people and oppressed people around the world from the condition that the, that the environment is in right now. And, you know, just make it a question around white people. But it is part and parcel of a parasitic system of capitalism that was born off the backs of the oppression of African, indigenous, and oppressed people around the world. And it needs for its very existence the profit motive. And the profit motive is based on doing whatever it wants to anybody else on the planet for the benefit of the colonizer nation. And this is something that I, you know, do want to talk about more and more in the upcoming time, this, this whole question of the environment. So I just want to get also to another instance of the popular um, movement of the white colonizers to fully commit genocide against the indigenous people. And that was the the hideous case of the Sand Creek Massacre that took place on November 29th, 1864 in Eastern Colorado. And it was during the Civil War led by Colonel Shivington, who was uh, a minister, by the way, uh, I think Episcopal minister and, uh, you know, just vicious, proponent of totally wiping out and exterminating the the indigenous people, the Sand Creek Massacre. I just want to read a little bit, very shortly, of of something that was uh, an account of it from the book Overturning the Culture of Violence. It says, one soldier who participated in the slaughter at Sand Creek, Colorado, said, in going over the battleground the next day, I did not see a body of man, woman, or child but was scalped, and in many instances, their bodies were mutilated in the most horrible manner. Men, women, and children's privates cut out, etc. I heard one man say he had cut the fingers off an Indian to get the rings on the hand. I heard of one instance of a child a few months old being thrown in the feed box of a wagon, and after being carried some distance, left on the ground to perish. I also heard of numerous instances in which men had cut out the private parts of females and stretched them over saddle bows and wore them on their hats while riding in the ranks. Another uh, another observer wrote of this U.S., you know, this government military assault on the Cheyenne people at Sand Creek said, all manner of depredations were inflicted on their persons. The indigenous people were scalped, their brains knocked out, the men used their knives, ripped open, meaning white men, of course, ripped open the women, clubbed little children, knocked them in the head with guns, beat their brains out, mutilated their bodies in every sense of the word, worse, mutilated than I ever saw before. Children two or three months old, all lying there from sucking infants up to warriors. So, you know, just 
the carnage, the carnage. And that, um, again, I, I really urge you to read about this, the Sand Creek Massacre. There is one instance in it of a young officer named Silas Sewell who ordered who who was ordered under Shivington to um, bring his men to ride his men to Sand Creek from Denver, and he um, when he saw what Shivington was doing, he refused to to participate. And it's not saying that you know he was against the the taking over of the land, but he in this case refused to participate. And he and and Shivington ordered his men to go ahead and, and participate in this uh, massacre, in this bloodbath. But Sewell stood there on his horse and he refused to go in. And he later testified against Shivington in, in a hearing where you know Congress sent somebody, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But two weeks after he testified against Shivington, he was mysteriously murdered in Denver. So, you know, politics are the same now as... Um, as they were then. So I just, um, I wanted to read uh, what happened was after the Sand Creek Massacre, a, a concerned senator from the East Coast traveled from Washington, D.C. to Colorado to confront Colorado's governor and Colonel Shivington openly on the matter of this massacre, this assault this genocide against the Cheyenne people. And the senator invited the general public to a town hall meeting at the Denver Opera House to discuss the Sand Creek slaughter. And as Stannard, David Stannard, who is the author of the book American Holocaust, which I really recommend people read and take a look at, which has so much information about the indigenous people in this entire hemisphere, North and South and the Caribbean, North and South America and the Caribbean. So Standard um, says this, that during the course of the discussion and debate, this is at the Denver Opera House that was packed to the gills, every balcony full um, with white people for this town hall meeting on the question of the brutal, brutal massacre of the indigenous people at Sand Creek. The, the senator said, asked the question, would it be best henceforward to try to quote, civilize the Indians or simply to exterminate them? And let me just say, both sides of that question, of course, are conquest and genocide, because to civilize them is to force them um, to be white Americans. And what the indigenous people, of course, were struggling for was self-determination and the return of their autonomy over their own land. So he, this, the senator raised this question. And then uh, Standard writes, whereupon the senator wrote in a letter to a friend, quote, there suddenly arose such a shout as is never heard unless upon some battlefield a shout almost loud enough to raise the roof of the opera house, quote, exterminate them, exterminate them. And as it says in the book, Overturning the Culture of Violence, this anecdote is perhaps a good indicator of the popularity of genocide throughout American history. It forms us of the, informs us of the initiative taken by the general white populace in the annihilation of the indigenous people. And it was enthusiastic. And this is what it was about. It was popular genocide. It's not something that, um, that the U.S. government did and white people opposed it. Mm. You know, I, I, I just, I really want to express appreciation for that point that you bring out in overturning the culture of violence and that you're bringing out here on the show today, Penny. Uh, I think it's so important that we understand that it was a popular thing. It was popular genocide, like you're saying, enthusiastically participated in by such a broad sector of the white population that it was a unifying force. It was it was seen as something that uh, solved the problems of white people, made the landless uh, have land. Um, it was something that 
you know, w- was even seen as like a populist democratic force, right? Democratic genocide. Um, that's that's just, I, I think, so incredibly important at this time um, th- that we're in right now when, when we're tempted to see uh, these kinds of things as either coming from the left or the right or, uh, you know, Democrat or Republican, that it was something across the board popularly supported. Yeah, and I think that um, that there was, from what I've read, there was something of a backlash against Shivington at a certain point, um, and he sort of died in disgrace in a way. He, I guess, turned out, you know, typical big alcoholic, abused his wife and all these things, but the the fact is that yeah just just like the abolition movement you know among white liberals that at a certain point after it has been carried out after the wealth has been um gained and uh stolen from either the the labor of indi- of african people or the land of indigenous people then, you know, something comes out, an outcry comes out, you know, among a certain sector of the white population against this. And, but yet it never stops the, the next thing because it, it never wants to stop the policy and it never wants to end the parasitic system that is built on the backs of African indigenous people and on their suffering and bloodshed for the benefit of the wealth and aspirations of white people. It has taken the leadership of the African revolution to raise that, that white people have to be serious about standing against the ongoing atrocities of the system of colonialism, that white people have to be organized under the leadership of the African revolution that is about overturning parasitic capitalism, and building a a world without the oppressor and the oppressed. Finally today, we'll be hearing from the indigenous people of California in their own voices. This is a section of the award-winning film Gold, Greed, and Genocide, The Untold Tragedy of the California Gold Rush. It was a year 2000 presentation from the International Indian Treaty Council and Project Underground. It was produced and directed by Pratap Chatterjee, associate producer Samuel Haradia. It was narrated by Delina Duncan. And if you'd like to see all of the film, Gold, Greed, and Genocide, you can check out the website of the International Indian Treaty Council or otherwise look for it on the internet. Gold, Greed, Genocide, you can Gold! News that the precious metal had been found buried in the riverbeds of California spread like wildfire after James Marshall found a nugget in the Sacramento River in Coloma on native Madu lands in 1848. The world rushed into the sleepy little village of Yerba Buena, turning it into the bustling city of San Francisco and the center for the California gold rush. In 1849, a year after Marshall's discovery, thousands of would-be millionaires flocked to the state by wagon, and eventually by train, bringing with them guns and other weapons. The gold prospectors traveled deep into the Sierra Mountains, down to the brush-covered hills and marshes of the Sacramento and San Joaquin Valleys, and climbed the mountains of the rugged Northwest, invading the lands of hundreds of our communities. For many thousands of years, we have lived here in a good way, living off the bountiful rivers and forests of our mother, the earth. We're standing on my traditional lands um, that no longer belong to us. Um, At this point, um, my tribe only has a 50-acre recognized reservation. But the southeastern Pomo 
owned all of this land that you can see in the background. This was our private lands, our fishing village. Uh, we sustained ourselves here for over 10,000 years until the arrival of the Spanish and the um, Americans. Everything was fruitful. There was, used to be a lot of elk in here and uh, that kind of thing. And they, the miners just ate all the elk up and left us with nothing. Over the 20 years of the gold rush, the numbers of our people plummeted from 150,000 to 31,000. Most of our ancestors starved to death after being forcibly removed from our lands and prevented from maintaining our traditional ways of living. Many of our relatives also died from diseases brought in by the miners. Others were also put to death in a series of deliberate killings organized by the local townspeople and by private militia financed by the state of California. The Weah peoples of modern Eureka and the Pomo of Clear Lake are two communities that were massacred by the settlers. The townspeople of Eureka decided that they wanted to take it. And one night, February 26, 1860, they came quietly, silently. They left their guns at home and they brought clubs and hatchets. They came while they were sleeping and the men were gone and they killed the women and children and the elders. So the island is bloody and there was a baby found on that island in 1860, the morning of, after the, the massacre took place. And that baby was Jerry James and he was my great-great-grandfather. It was public policy to take my scalp. It was public policy to take my ear. Public policy even to take my head and sell it to California's government for five bucks. We're standing at this rock here where it says uh, Bloody Island, scene of a battle between the U.S. soldiers under command of Captain Lyons and Indians under Chief Augustine. This battle that they're calling was actually a massacre of our people here on Venapati. And it started with, uh, with these two men from um, the Sonoma area called Charles Stone and Andrew Kelsey. They bought some land from uh, Vallejo, General Vallejo, and came up here and brought their cows and settled in the area over there by Canuctai, uh, the town that they call Kelseyville now. They treated the Indians real bad. They, they would uh, enslave them. They made them build fences around their own village so they couldn't go hunting or gathering. And they wanted complete control. They would tell the parents, bring your little girls to our house, Stone and Kelsey. And the parents would, and if they refused, they would get hung in a tree and they would get whipped and left there all night for punishment. They were treated so bad and starving that they went and killed Charles Stone and Andrew Kelsey. And for killing them, Ben Kelsey uh, heard about it and he got 15 vigilantes together, uh, which one of the vigilantes was the governor of California, William Boggs. Uh, there was lawyers, there were businessmen. I mean, it was just, you know, regular citizens got together and they came over here just to kill and revenge what happened to Andrew Kelsey and Charles Stone. One of the few survivors of this massacre was Lucy Moore, the great-grandmother of Clayton Duncan. The reason why she survived was because of a game that the kids played around here in the Tulis, a hide-and-go-seek game. They would take a reed and they would uh, hide under the water and breathe through this reed while, you know, they would be hiding. And it was kind of hard to, you know, find a little brown kid in a, in a bunch of Tulis, you know, breathing through the reed under the water. And so she knew that game. And uh, when this battle happened, when this butchering happened, well, that's what she done. She took this reed, her mother told her to get a reed. She got under the water and she started breathing through the reed and that's how she survived. The Wea and the Pomo were not the only peoples to be targeted for extinction by the miners in the California Gold Rush. The Wintu peoples of Mount Shasta reported deliberate attempts to wipe out entire villages. We had a big feast over toward Trinity, Trinity Center because our tribe goes all that far too. And we have what we call a natural bridge. And that's where they try to feed a, a bunch of Indians and slaughter them for the food, with the poison food also. 
And then there's another story where the army came in and brought in blankets with smallpox in and uh, got them sick and they couldn't have no cure for it because Indian systems weren't the same as theirs. And so we lost a lot of our Indian people that way. Ishi was um, a Yana Yahi man. He was believed to be and, and called the, the last wild Indian in North America. Uh, it's practically the only mention of California Indians in the, uh, in the school system. They've, they've never yet uh, been able to, to say that, uh, yes, uh, uh, genocide was practiced upon uh, and carried out to at least a quarter of a million people at a minimum, and all of Ishii's family all of his people, they were all exterminated. Many of the people who survived were forced onto reservations or sold into slavery to provide free labor in the mines and on the ranches. Over 4,000 children were bought and sold at markets at prices ranging from $60 for a boy to $200 for a girl. Enslaved women and girls were sold for higher prices because the miners and ranchers used them for forced sexual labor. For five years, people were kept in concentration camps. Miners would come and take girls and boys, rape them, sell them, and finally they were put on the Suez Indian Reservation, the Grand Ron Reservation in Oregon. Thirty women, five couples, were allowed to stay because the couples were elders and the women were with minors. My great-great-great-grandmother was one of those women. Immigrant diseases, smallpox, malaria, tuberculosis, measles, typhoid, cholera, killed over half of the native California population. 700,000 people, white man's devastation to 150,000 in 1845 to 31,870. And you were just listening to a section of the film Gold, Greed, and Genocide, The Untold Tragedy of the California Gold Rush. This film came out in the year 2000. It was a production of the International Indian Treaty Council and Project Underground. It was produced and directed by Pratap Chatterjee and associate producer Samuel Haradia. You're listening to Reparations in Action. Reparations now! This has been an episode of Reparations in Action, the White Lies Shattered series, a biased podcast of white solidarity with black power. My name is Jamie Simpson. This episode was engineered by Marcel Marius, who also composed our theme music. The show is researched and produced by Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Lisa Watson from the Black Power 96.3 FM studio in St. Petersburg, Florida. A shout out to Akile Anayi and DJ Eddie Maltzby, as well as the entire Reparations in Action team, Sandra Forrest, Johan Bedingfield, Amanda Carlozzi, Kyle Weiss, Marissa Ricchetti, Ali Aiello, Alana Woods, Declan Keller, Hallie Murray, and Sarah Ritterspock. If you liked what you heard today, you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate this podcast. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, please email them to us at ria at blackpower96.org. Special thanks to the African People's Socialist Party's Chairman Omali Yeshitela, without whose leadership and theory of African internationalism, none of the understandings presented on reparations in action would be possible. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week.